Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina. We'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do journal club our way. Join us. Today, we review the article, Political Populism, Responsiveness, and Public Support for Climate Mitigation. The lead author is Robert A. Huber, and the article appeared in Climate Policy in 2020. Paper time. I read it two weeks ago and then didn't look at it again and then forgot what it was about. So then I had to read it again today. So <laughs> it was almost like I didn't read it until today. But I, I technically was super prepared and then forgot what I'd read. So I will. I read it last night. So <laughs> we're all doing good today. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're good. So I guess we can start. Article? It's uh... we'll start right now. Okay. <laughs> So go ahead, say what you're going to say. Okay, no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> so let's see, today we got political populism, responsiveness, and public support for climate mitigation. Uh, lead author Robert Huber uh, here, and it was what? A journal called Climate Policy, which, is it just me or are there like random journals for everything now? There are too many journals. There's a, there's probably a journal called There Are Too Many Journals. What should we do about it? <laughs> the Journal of Too Many Journals. <laughs> journal of Too Many Journals. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that if not, um, now there probably will be one in a week uh, out of like India or something. <laughs> Elsevier Springer starting that one just to make a little bit more money off of it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a wreck. I actually... So I'm not even super involved in my field of study these days and I got an invitation to contribute a book chapter and I was just like I'm so tempted to just do it because I'm sure that um they're gonna get a lot of random people that need like something published and I actually did work on the topic in grad school but I was just like eh, I don't know it's not worth my time anymore there's so much fluff content out there that I was just like nope I'm not gonna contribute to that racket <laughs> No, yeah, I don't blame you. Just like, although it's funny for me when I get some of those because they clearly don't proofread my name when they send me those things because it's like one of the ones that I got, they dropped the D and the R from my name, from my first name. And just... So you're most mostly vowels, like I-N? <laughs> it was A-I-E-N-N-E. And I don't know how the heck you... <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah. Well... But all right. off topic yeah off super topic. random journal title uh climate policy that's not a totally random one i think that's a pretty good one i don't know how old that journal is off the top of my head i i haven't paid attention to that although this article annoyed me and you all are gonna find out this article annoyed me <laughs> okay good i'm actually interested to know what you think of it because it didn't bother me that much there was a couple things in it that i was like 
confused about. So maybe you can explain and maybe I'll be annoyed too, or maybe we can argue. That'll be fun. We usually agree a lot. So it's like, <laughs> Oh no, we can, we can get into arguments. My, my get... more thing was, this was, well, we'll, we'll get into that, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. So front. me and, and Adrian are friends. So we try to like get along and not argue about things, but maybe we can fight about this. I thought this was okay, but I am, this I am yeah. Yeah. I, I would say this one's not quite the dumpster fire that the first one was. Um, but it's sure. Yeah. So on a scale either. of like dumpster fire to apple pie, or we're like. It's apple pie order, I think is what. Oh. Thank you to our listener. You know who you are who gave us the suggestion that the opposite of a dumpster fire is apple pie order, which I did not know this until somebody told me. <laughs> cool. So apple pie order for, or dumpster fire. So where on that scale would you say? that it is. I don't even know how you put gradations between those two things, but you know, I think it's a dumpster that's not flaming, but it has some apples in it. Okay. <laughs> I would say it's like an empty pie shell that someone left next to a dumpster. So I'm a little bit less annoyed by it. I think the, I think there were some things in the experimental design that I was kind of confused by. There were a lot of different random things that they did um, but we can talk about what they did first so people know that yeah. we are what we're talking about. Do you want to read the abstract for everybody? Or yeah. I... I'll do that. Yeah. Okay. The abstract, which if you haven't heard the show before, is the thingy at the top of the paper that you see before the paywall. So <laughs> uh, it's the TLDR of the paper. For those of you that spend too much time on the internet, know what that means. All right. Populism and its rhetoric are on the rise. We will talk about populism is, but I'm just going to read it. Political actors across different ideological camps and parties are employing dispositional blame attribution, emphasizing their non-responsiveness or of corrupt elites to the needs of good and honest people. In this paper, we focus on one specific and common area of blame attribution, climate change. In particular, in the United States, a central player in global climate governance, climate change is a very con contested issue. The successes of populist candidates in both major U.S. parties suggest that populism could affect citizen support for climate mitigation policies. The often abstract, elite-driven, and technical nature of climate change makes this issue an ideal target for populist critique. Our paper offers an empirical assessment of this claim. First, we test whether populism truly has an independent effect on people's climate attitudes. Second, we assess to what extent frames, uh, oh, this is a weird sentence. Second, we assess to what extent frames about elite responsiveness are important heuristics for individuals in their formation of preferences concerning climate policies. To accomplish this goal, we fielded representative U.S. surveys, so 300, or sorry, 3,000 participants, and collected both observational and experimental data. Results suggest that populist attitudes enhance the effects of partisanship rather than creating an independent orthogonal dimension. Statistics speak, which we shall explain later. Populist Democrats support climate policies more than non-populist Democrats do, whereas populist Republicans oppose such policies more than non-populist Republicans. Additionally, while our experimental results indicate that populist treatments blaming elites for being non-responsive to citizens' preferences, that is quite the noun, uh, do not affect policy support. We also find that reassuring individuals that political elites care about citizens' needs and preferences in relation to climate policy increases support for the policy. 
So, so a big, a big mouthful of an abstract, but they basically made uh, a representative survey population. So they recruited by different uh, demographics that would make it, you know, equal, uh, like a microcosm of American society. So like a certain proportion of urban and rural men, women, different races. So they recruited their survey respond respondents to fit this uh, distribution of characteristics. So I think that's what that means. And they re they actually gave them, from what I can tell, maybe you, maybe I misinterpreted this, but they surveyed them and asked them a bunch of questions about their thoughts on climate policy, and we'll talk about what specifically they asked. But it was followed by reading um, some like fake, I don't even know what you'd call them. They're like paragraphs that make you think certain things about. The political elites i'm going to find like an example yeah it's, it's of what... the context treatment conditions yeah the these are like priming so in psychology surveys you like sometimes if you want to stimulate a certain like mental reaction to something and then see how that mental reaction affects the answers to the questions you'll like actually simulate like that by giving them something to read that makes them react so like for example if they were in the uh, the, so they have these paragraphs that they would read where it was either about climate change or just a general thing about politics that doesn't really talk much about any specific issue. And then it would be like a high amount of populist rhetoric and then a low amount of populist rhetoric. So there were like four different things. It was either high climate, high general, low climate and low general. So an example of one of those would be most policymakers, scientists, and other experts agree that climate change, also known as global warming, is a serious problem in the United States. They also agree that far-reaching new policies are needed to deal with this problem. Many Americans believe that political elites, including policymakers, scientists, and other experts, care about citizens' interests when dealing with this problem. After all, they are citizens too. So that's the, oh, sorry, that is the high responsiveness. So that's like the high amount of care uh, in the thing, but then low amount of care. Policy makers, scientists, and other experts agree that climate change, also known as global warming, is a serious problem. They also agree that far-reaching new policies are needed. Many Americans believe that political elites, including policymakers, scientists, and other experts, care mostly about their own self-interest rather than their citizens' interests when dealing with the problem. After all, they are out of touch with the citizens and their needs. So that would be like the, that's the higher populist rhetoric one but they yeah. call it low responsiveness, but it just means like low, like a low oh. amount of care is implied. Yeah. Whereas the other one means that the political elites do care. Well, and then the other one was like the same wording, but just didn't mention climate change. Yeah, no, it's more just like general topic stuff. And uh, now that you read it, I've, I noticed something that just gets me so mad. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, the climate scientist to me would have been like flagging this paper down at, like you idiots why are you telling some people something that is a false statement it was a false statement in what you just read um most policymakers scientists and other experts agree that climate change also known as global warming is a serious problem in the united states and it's not the serious problem part it's the fact that they equated global warming and climate change as being the same thing, and they are demonstrably not the same thing in climate science. 
Yeah, I guess global warming is a component of climate change, but it's not all of it. Is that more accurate or is it global worse warming than that? Is pretty much what it says on the tin. It's the warming of the Earth's average temperatures, right? Sure. But climate is more than temperature. Climate is temperature, it's precipitation, it's weather patterns, changes in weather patterns on average over time. And so it's just like when you break it down that far, global warming is not exactly the same thing as climate change. I'm sorry, mm. it's just a completely false statement. I roasted a communications professor for doing this when I was in grad school, so. <laughs> oh dear, that must have been fun. I would have enjoyed watching that. Oh, you know, that was, that was, that was really entertaining because how I roasted him was on the midterm exam. I roasted him the essay ah. in the term exam that he kept using it. And just like, I'm a climate scientist. You're using my language wrong. That's funny. So <laughs> he that had was- to give me an A too. I did so well. He probably hated it, but I had to <laughs> he had to give me an A. Well, that's what you gotta do, you know? If you're gonna if you're gonna do that, you at least better be right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess that's a good point. I didn't really catch that, but that's fair. Um uh, yeah. So, so but, yeah, that's frustrating. I don't know what effect would that have had on the results? I wonder. I mean, it's hard to say because it's gotten so stuck in the lexicon that way in the in the public lexicon that way that people do equate the two, even though they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's admittedly a big beef of a problem. How do you take the language back such that folks recognize the difference and that when scientists say climate change, they don't necessarily mean just temperature. <laughs> uh, yeah at this point and it's just it's very difficult to win that argument and how you would go about doing it um which yeah. is where a communications person would be helpful but <laughs> yeah yeah this is an interesting so what department was this this is political science and sociology at salzburg university of salzburg austria mm-hmm. uh and then at eth zurich i know some people that are there not in i this, know ETH- not in this department i know eth zurich not in that department necessarily, but I, there's a, there's a few really really good climate scientists in that department that I know about. Like Re- and, uh, Reto uh, Knuti is one of them. He, he's a brilliant guy dealing with the climate modeling world, and he could have flagged that down in a heartbeat if they'd asked him. Yeah. So Lucas Fezenfeld is the second author, and Thomas Bernauer. Those guys are at the ETH Zurich uh, Institute, and the other ones are at Salzburg, and. Institute for Science, Technology, and Policy. Oh, so also ETH Zurich. Yeah, okay. ETH, ETH is a big enterprise. There's a there's a lot there, and it's pretty much a big science enterprise in in Switzerland. Yeah, a bunch of people that I work with are there. So, and I met some of them at the conference last week, which was really surreal and cool. Sweet. So, yeah. Um, so, okay, back to this topic. Yeah, so sorry. there's a couple of terms that I feel like we need to define for the listeners before we dive into more of this. So how they define populism, I think is interesting because I think populism, well, we can talk about this. I do think populism defines a lot of kind of like how our locals friends believe how they see the political landscape, mm-hmm. um, that there is a, an elite that's self-interested and then a people whose interests are ignored. And there's a little bit of like the good and evil uh, discourse, which the authors call Manichian discourse, which I had to look up. Uh, and it, I guess it's kind of complicated, but it's uh, 
It was an early Christian heresy that uh, there was a prophet named Manny in the third century AD that preached in Persia and thought he was like the last prophet. And it was this discourse about how there was a fall and we're, we're all, uh, we've fallen from good and to get back to our pure selves, then we have to get back to the beginning, how we were before the fall and this battle between good and evil. I don't think he's the first one to, to say this, but I guess this is what the authors and maybe other people in this field think populism is like that. It's a modern manifestation of this Manichian discourse. So that was neat. Didn't know that. I don't know how I feel about it because I'm not an expert in those things, but um, and then the other thing is they're saying that populist rhetoric is an example of dispositional blame attribution, which I had to look up to. And that yeah, means did, basically... Did you look it up? Because I did not, actually. And I'm wondering what that is. Yeah. It, so uh, dispositional attribution, attribution versus situational attribution are kind of like the two things that in social psychology, it's like what people, how people describe the motivation behind behaviors. So if you say like... Um, I didn't do a good job teaching that class because I'm uh, because the students were unruly. That is situational blame attribution. And then dispositional is that person did a bad job teaching that class because they're stupid. That's a it oh, blames I the disposition on the behavior instead of the circumstance. So apparently it's common, uh, at least on according to social psych research, that uh, people tend to apply situational attribution to themselves and uh, dispositional attribution to others on average. Okay. So that makes that's sense. like a fancy way of saying that the, uh, the, the elites are ignoring us because they're bad people and we're doing what we do because of some situational reason. Mm -hmm. so. And it's a, and there's a, um, presumption there that the elites are all bad people and and i right. would say like the manchian thing where you have the moral struggle between good people and the elite there's there's echoes of that in other things in history and i think of i think of karl marx immediately when i'm reading that and yes that's a that's a manichean discourse i think totally totally yeah because his was the uh, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat kind of yeah yeah, there's been a lot of versions of this. I think this is a human thing. It seems like it's pretty ancient in our heads. So it would make sense that this is maybe how it's playing out, at least in U.S. politics <laughs> related to climate change. Who I don't know that I necessarily else. agree with the... the um, I can see where they're coming from with the description of populism. I just don't know that I'd agree with it in, in the sense that it's sometimes more nuanced than that in that not all not all the elites are bad because like i'm just trying to think who was i thinking of i think it was ben shapiro i was listening to for some reason the other day and it's just like well technically i'm an elite because i went to harvard and all this other stuff and, but does that mean yeah. i'm an elitist there's there's a difference there in terms of like you're an elite you have the degrees you have the expertise you make the money all this other kind of stuff but that doesn't yeah. mean you're self-centered and focusing yeah on, on yourself so i don't know maybe I think, maybe the yeah. actual maybe the actual way they should think about it here is who's being defined as an elitist rather because the elitist would encompass the quality of being an elite but also being focused on yourself at the same time yeah that makes sense i think there it's like a really basic 
working definition, just in the defense of them, because I don't know, just for fun, we can we can somewhat disagree. I don't really mind it. their definition too much because I do agree that it's hard to figure out who like who's elite because you and I could be considered elite since we went to college and we have graduate degrees and we have the ability to read a journal article where a lot of people may not have that ability. So I, like how far in do you have to be to be considered an elite? Like, is it above a certain salary? Is it a certain amount of like status in a career? Cause like, I'm not really an elite in my career. I'm just some chick that writes and does science. <laughs> I'm just some researcher. I'm, I don't have have like high status in my field or anything um you know i so i don't know like how where the line is blurry right well, it's like so it's, also, it's, it's the same thing as how do you define an expert right yeah you, you know, had that conversation offline before it's just like yeah how do you define yeah. an expert in something well i did learn recently semi-recently that like definitions are kind of like a new obsession that people have with like well, we have to define our terms. We have to define our terms. That's all good and everything, but you can end up going into this sort of infinite regression of definitions and never actually getting anything done if you have the belief that the definition is somehow this fundamental piece of information, which it isn't. It's more like a tool. So <laughs> like if you say, what is what is a liberal? Then you're like, okay, that's a person who believes blah, blah, blah. And then there might be definitions in there. All right, well, what does that really mean then? What's really a democracy then? What's that? You know, and then you have a bunch of definitions that expand from there. And then you're like, okay, but what's that? And then you're not getting anything done. You're just fighting about the meaning of words like that. So sometimes you just have to choose a working definition to be able to talk about the problem and actually like bear down on something real. That is a problem though, because we don't all share the same definitions of, of particular words right now at this point, or sometimes even connotations of whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing right now. Yeah. And, and what is good? That's like a an impossible thing to define in my opinion i know a lot of philosophers would disagree i think that they're all searching for what is good and they'll never find it because it's very uh subjective <laughs> so nah, i mean i could partly agree with that although i think you, you and i would probably both agree that there's such a thing as objective reality but <laughs> yeah yeah that's tricky i guess without getting way too far off topic uh <laughs> there's a there's a good book called uh darwinian natural right which I have read uh, most of. And he talks actually about the definition of what is good. And his definition, I think, makes sense. It's what does not frustrate human nature. And he actually has like 20 traits that he thinks are common to all humans across cultures and time. And I thought it was a really compelling argument. Some of his examples, I thought he sidesteps some uncomfortable facts that people don't really like talking about. But for the most part, I thought it was an interesting argument because you don't really see people talking a lot about human nature. So that's kind of where I get my point of view from. And it would take a whole other podcast to really unfold that. So <laughs> um, we don't need to go there today. We don't need to go there. We already we already spent a lot of time on these things. So, no, no, so no. anyhow, yeah, definitions. So this in terms of the study, the authors consider populism to be people centered, anti-elitist and to have that Manichean good and evil discourse. So those are their three criteria. And, uh, and that's what they're, they're trying to measure if that alone has an independent effect on people's support for climate policies, um, independent of their political party affiliation. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the results were like, it was kind of a weak effect 
but it did tend to make the part the political ideological like democrats who had populist leanings became more supportive of climate policy than um democrats without populist leanings and then the republicans with populist leanings became less uh uh less excited about climate policy compared to non-populist republicans so it kind of just like polarized everyone which if you've been on the internet you will not be shocked by that result <laughs> uh i would not be shocked by that result if they actually demonstrated that at all because the okay, way okay yeah so we can get into their <laughs> methods because i'm not they didn't have a so i did they have a control for oh i mean the treatment conditions was there a no treatment group that just answered the questions without reading the treatment i feel yeah, like you so need that right let's get to the thing oh the other thing they talk about here that's probably also kind of kind of relevant is relevant to the thing about populism is uh the chain of delegation thing because it's the core okay. of a populist critique and it's the idea that you know responsiveness is a key element of principal agent relationship chain of delegation between voters and political elites in western representative democracies citizens delegate to elected officials hoping they will represent their preferences and respond to changes of opinion if they fail to do so citizens ultimately hold them accountable for example by voting for other officials the chain of delegation has been at the core of populist criticism. Populists tend to claim that elites are not responsive to citizens' needs and preferences rather, and rather follow their own interests. Thus, central actors in policymaking, the people, are mostly left out of the process. In what follows, we argue that claims about responsiveness affect individual climate policy support. Um, so there's that I thought was kind of relevant because what they actually measure in here in those treatments is the responsiveness thing that's part of the populism dialogue. It's not the it's not populism itself per se, but <laughs> yeah. Well, they they did say at the end that this was a pretty contrived scenario and that it's hard to tell what this was actually demonstrating. So I think they oh, I, I think, think I, I think that was another problem I had with it was this is pretty contrived piece of not piece of treatment garbage. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, go ahead and, and unload. What what are all the issues that you have with the study? Because I actually want to know before I go put my foot in my mouth. I'm not a I'm not that good at principal component analysis, and I'm not sure how appropriate that was for this kind of data. So that's, that's I, also... I'm doubtful that it was very appropriate just because that's very hard to do on social science data to begin with. Um, and, okay... Easily one of my biggest beefs that they that I have with this article is that for key points, there's kind of a general unwritten rule with with research in that you don't anything that you need, be it tables or figures or text, if you need it to make your point in the article, don't put it in the appendix. <laughs> and that's oh. That's the biggest beef I, one of the biggest beefs I have with this is because everything to sell that point about the partisanship and populism thing, mm -hmm. it's not in the paper itself. You could not come to that conclusion by reading the graphics and the analysis that are present in the paper itself. You could only get that if you went to all the material in the appendix. So something for a main point they were trying to sell, they left it completely out of the paper. So that's why I was just like, I'm reading the paper and was like, that doesn't prove your point at all. <laughs> What did you find in the appendix? I think two oh, well, weeks I ago when I read this, I went into it, but I don't remember. I didn't get to read the appendix. You, oh, okay. 
as an old as an old mentor of mine used to say is just like you should be able to get the main points of everything that the author was trying to say in the main article itself without the appendix mm -hmm. the appendix is for the folks who are geeky and want to go look at the rest of the details right yeah <laughs> like they yeah they want to read your like they want to they yeah i know what you mean so yeah, yeah so that was, i guess that was one thing i had a problem with there there's others um yeah just just go for it just like <laughs> plow on through i'm i'm very uh, curious so i i get how do i put well i can leave that general comment for later um because it's just a general remark on the idiocy of researchers because i like i know one of my thoughts when i had this after the fact <laughs> that i was reading it, it was like why do you think people are stupid that they have to be led about by all of this well we had that discussion in the last episode about that other paper where he like wanted to the author views the 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 non-scientist public as uh sheep mm -hmm. or lambs that need to be shepherded or something it was like very mm -hmm. paternalistic mm -hmm. i do see that quite a bit in the science communication literature this like well, these folks just have all these wrong beliefs and we have to convince them otherwise and do all these sort of clever things to help people come over to our side. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, there aren't, there aren't enough, there aren't enough different viewpoints out there to catch those things. Anymore. Yeah. And, and I'm just trying to find where, but that's where it caught me again. It's like, well, this populist discourse can lead people to think about this, but I'm just also like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you not thinking of the reverse? where people are actually seeing it for themselves and not feeling represented. And so politicians and people wanting to get elected are responding to that and creating the disc and talking in that language. It's like, there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but you're not even considering the ultimate, the other thing that uh, people yeah. are aggravated that you are not hearing them. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I'm trying to remember wh where they said it, but um, they did have a control on those treatments. Um, okay. I just trying to remember exactly where they listed it because it was kind of listed as an afterthought. It wasn't actually in the study design section. Okay. <laughs> did they hope that we would just assume they had a control? Cause that's always something I look for. Cause that's like what the control is tells you a lot about what the, the study design is actually mm -hmm. going to show you. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, where is it? I know I, I know I read it because I highlighted it. <laughs> and now if I can Yeah, a lot of my highlight colors didn't come out. So I had all these things oh, highlighted no. in multiple colors and I can't see them all now. No, I know I know they had a control because I remember reading that. It's just whether or not I can find it in the doc okay. is going to be something else. Um, although I really wanted to, I could just pull up the PDF and do a control F or something like that. Yeah, that, that could work too. Um, they had this actually really, when you said that um, they're not assuming the opposite, that the populism is a result of candidates actually not caring. Mm -hmm. Um rather than like a perception of not caring. I think mm -hmm. that is interesting because why, I think none of these studies that I've read about populism so far, I have a lot of them, so I, maybe I'll hit it eventually, <laughs> is there aren't that many explanations oh, or even proposed explanations for why people would feel not heard. It's a lot of, well, the people don't feel heard, so then 
these sort of populist demagogues come out of the woodwork to supply what they're demanding. Right. That was that was a sentence in the paper, and I was looking for it just now, that said, like, the candidates provide or the populist uh, rhetoric is the, is the demand side for which the candidates supply what, what they're need. But why would someone feel that way is not actually addressed. Yeah. Because I think the assumption is that they're just stupid and wrong. Oh yeah, there to, it is. There it is. If I have to say anything. It's, it's, um, in this, in the, it is in the study design section. I just wasn't paying attention. Um, <laughs> let's see. The control, yeah. you found it. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. All respondents received a survey. I, okay, so survey begins with basic demographic data. That's your normal kind of stuff. Respondents yep. then received survey items about populist attitudes, see next section, and were randomly assigned to one of five emphasis framing treatments. Um, let's see. Oh, the fifth one is the non, right. I'm guessing. The fifth one is the control, where there was oh. no framing given. Yeah, that was not super explicit, but okay yeah five that makes sense there's the four that they showed oh and then they have oh right at the very bottom they have control group really tiny yep not helpful but okay well it's there so fair enough yep uh Um, building on the study we varied the context and presented the information either in terms of a climate policy specific issue context or just in or in general terms we generally anticipated that the latter would more substantially influence respondents than general information this approach resulted in four condition, four treatment conditions and a control group as summarized in table one. It is important to note that we provided more stylized treatments in order to avoid any conflation of the populist message with politically left or right terminology or words associated with the Republican or Democratic Party. Thus, the frames lack any thick ideology and present pure populist critique, which is necessary for disentangling partisanship from populism. We provide these statements both in a climate-specific and general context in order to test the robustness of the responsiveness argument. While we anticipated the general responsiveness statements would affect individual policy support, we expected the effect to be more pronounced if the frame was explicitly phrased in the climate context, which is basically to say if you poke somebody's nerves about something that they are passionate about, you're going to get more of a reaction. Yeah. Because this, the, uh, the sort of general ones are just about like problems. They don't say which problems. So it doesn't make you feel any certain way. So I guess that is the point they made though, is that populist rhetoric is linked to issues. It's not just a thing on its own. So I I actually had a problem with the way they did the treatment conditions of the framing. And tell me, tell me what you think, because like in the low responsiveness climate condition, they say, Many Americans believe that political elites, include, including policymakers, scientists, and other mm-hmm. experts, care mostly about their own self-interest. Okay. The framing of that, to me, is such that they are basically saying if other people think elites care or not care, not mm-hmm. whether or not they actually do. Yeah, it's more like um, it kind of... Uh, stimulating that desire people have to be like other people like you know just well everyone else thinks this and then you know if you're the kind of person that immediately doesn't want to go along with the crowd like if I read that I'd be like oh am I like most people do I think that well I kind of pride myself in being different from other people so I'd immediately be like I don't think that 
you know. But if you're somebody that's like reading this and you're and and you maybe want to be more like other people and you like norming and you respond a lot to that, mm-hmm. you might be like, oh, oh, maybe I should think that. But I think it's like a, yeah, I it is kind of weird because I bet that would I bet that would affect the results in some way because oh, yeah. how like how would you have worded it differently? Um, just like left out. You mean just to say, uh. I would have phrased it in terms of what are the people in question doing rather than just saying they just generally care. Oh, like most policymakers, scientists, and other experts agree that climate change is a serious problem for the United States. They also agree that far-reaching new policies are needed to deal with the problem. Political elites... Uh, including policymakers, scientists, and other experts care. Instead of saying many Americans believe, so you would have just struck out the many Americans believe well, no, that. I, I mean, that's one way to do it. I actually would have gone for more so instead of framing it as just saying that they care or saying that many Americans think that they care, mm-hmm. I would have framed it in a way that. Oh, like well, how I, are I'm they drawing- showing? Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, how are they showing that they care? So like sure. almost if you were to frame it in like a news article kind of way, say, okay, these, because because of their concerns about X and wanting to make sure you are heard, uh, policymakers are sitting down in a roundtable town hall with, with everyone at X time. So I would almost have framed it mm. in, like a, in a news article kind of style where it's just like, oh, we know they're going to be doing this. And that's really great that they're going to sit down and listen to their constituents about this problem. Yeah. You know, um, as opposed to the other one where I've been like, no, nah, and policymakers are about to vote on this policy after minimal interaction kind of thing. So something. To oh, so that. you could say something like um, uh, policymakers, climate change is a serious problem. They agree that new policies are needed. Uh policymakers assessed their citizens opinions about the problem and used it when they voted like that's a really bad way of wording it but is that kind of what you're looking for yeah something something more like that to actually demonstrate that there's care response there you know yeah i wonder if they were trying to keep it as generic as possible but then it ended up not having any teeth as a result like they were trying to make it as as like neutral as possible but then that like sterilized it and made it not that not that potent well yeah and and i also wonder if these guys don't think individualism is a thing that people might just not care that many other americans think this (laughs) you know that's a good point too uh, yeah i mean honestly if i even the people who think they're so collectivist in this country, they're all individualists because they all want to have Starbucks their way still, you know, <laughs> like it's not like have that pumpkin spice latte that's disgusting. Yeah. Like, right. Like Chinese collectivism is called as a cultural phenomenon that is very hard for Westerners to understand. And I think that even our super left liberal academics, like they think they like collectivism, but they don't because they still want, to be them they still believe in their individual identity they they love that it's like almost hyper individualism in some ways so so i i would i would say they probably don't know what individualism is but maybe what you're saying is true too that um they uh the authors yeah the authors of this study don't 
realize that some people like don't want to go along with the crowd. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one way to think of it. Yeah. I mean, in a way that's almost being ignorant of populism because I think a lot of the populist rhetoric talks about people being sheep when they go along with the authorities. Yeah. 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 So like, yeah. But then the left wing version of populism if you go along with the authorities, then you've sold out to make money like a dirty capitalist. So they all have their own version of this. It's like, you know, Occupy Wall Street was a populist movement that was on the left. It's not just the right that does this stuff. No, so. it's not. And I mean, they, and, the, and I, I'm glad they, that's one thing I will give them credit for, they, that they acknowledge that here, mm -hmm. you know, um, because that, that does make a, um, that populism does really affect both parties or both yeah. ideologies, if you will. Um, yeah, I also I find it really interesting that so much of this populist research the populism and science communication is out of Switzerland like the the Swiss value like cultural value of neutrality I think might be the reason why this why that like the researchers in Switzerland seem to be interested in this topic and like wanting to bridge the gap it's sometimes a little awkward, but I do know someone who grew up in Switzerland and it's true that neutrality and like that kind of thing is taught uh, in their in their school system. It's like a it's a value that nationally is held by many Swiss. So I think that's interesting that this research is coming out of Switzerland. I've, there's a whole lot of papers in my populism and SciComm repository that are about this and they come from. Uh, Swiss organizations in large part. There's collaboration, so there's others involved, but... Yeah, I would not have called that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, it just so. it just so happens a close friend of mine is Swiss, and he's totally into being neutral and hearing everyone's side, and sometimes it makes him get walked over uh, because he doesn't always take a stand on things, which can right. also be a problem sometimes, too. That's so. true. That's true. Okay, so there's that. So those are the frames. So after the treatment, they asked respondents about their climate concern, policy support, and willingness to pay for climate mitigation policies. Now, I did want to make a note here because it was another thing that bugged me, though it was minor compared to everything else. And I've got a lot of, I, I went in peer review mode, so it might have been reviewer too. Um, <laughs> at one point. They need you, I think. And honestly, I had a little bit of a beef with the concern and like the questions they asked for that section too. So I want to hear oh, what you're <laughs> Yeah. I think this was the part that I was like, why would you frame it that way? That's kind of like ignorant. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, so one of the things they didn't, I mean, they talked about it at the beginning of the article a little bit where they made a distinction between adaptation and mitigation. Um, ah, okay. Those are two different, two very different types of climate policies that can exist, but here and a lot of the way through, they only talked about mitigation. Um, so this is one thing where I think they probably are, depending upon how they ask the questions, which I, I got to look at it and remember, cause I can't remember how they asked the question about support for policy mm -hmm. or willingness to pay for policy. If they just said policies and they're just lumping in all sorts of policies, most people might think mitigation policies because adaptation policies are lesser known, um, just in the mm. general public lexicon than in, than mitigation policies are. And the reason why is the mitigation policies are the big ones that lead to like pushing for renewable energy or changing, closing down pipelines or things like that. Yeah. Or having carbon capture and control things mandated on coal fired power plants. Those, those kinds of things. Yeah. 
um, mitigation has to do with how are you going to reduce emissions? And those, oh, you mean yeah? Those are yeah. It's like national whole, and international kind of policy decisions, like the big sweeping things that are like stopping the train, yeah. sort of, or yeah. attempting to. Um, right, <laughs> attempting <laughs> attempting to is hard. <laughs> But adaptation is on the other side and is lesser known because it's much more local. So it depends on how much your community is invested in doing that. But adaptation is, okay, we know there's going to be some changes. What are we going to do as a community to make the community more resilient? Um, So this is something that states and individual tribal nations and um, local communities and municipalities will engage in. So like New York City being as big as it is and having as much budget as it is, as it does, has its own climate adaptation plan. City of Austin, Texas has its own climate climate adaptation plan. Um, But Mm -hmm. those are all at city level. Some of them are county level. And some of that adaptation stuff gets incorporated into hazard mitigation planning um, by emergency managers in different counties and communities. So that's very local. But yeah. my kind of thing with this is like, don't equate mitigation and adaptation to be the same thing because they're very much not. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a detail that I, I definitely miss, but I definitely agree with you on that. And I think that the adaptation stuff is not talked about enough. The activists focus almost exclusively on mitigation. Yeah. And both of them are necessary, but I think they would have more people on board from other ideological groups if they talked about adaptation also. Well, the adaptation stuff is really interesting because you could get a lot of people on board really easily because even if you don't think the climate is changing, you might have concerns about flooding rains or droughts or things like that. And a lot of those adaptation policies can be wrapped up in the idea of well, the community already experiences these things. And if they change, that's going to be mm-hmm. more of an issue. So you know what? Let's make our community more resilient to these things anyway. Right. And yeah, if well, climate why would change, that? Yeah. we're extra prepared. <laughs> exactly. I also think that, um, you know, they talk about how s- climate change is this very abstract, distant kind of big problem where you like, you don't see it in your everyday life. So it can be really hard to connect with it. So it's really ripe for this kind of populist rhetoric, but uh, the adaptation scenarios are very regional and local, and you can actually relate to those changes and actually observe things like, oh, that might be why that thing is happening, and it didn't mm-hmm. 20 years ago or something. And so you're more, I don't know, I think the there's not enough appreciation for how in, how engaged a lot of people are in their local community. And mm-hmm. I maybe maybe that's the urban bias, like the urban international bias of researchers is that we're used to kind of seeing the world as our neighborhood because we work with people all over the world and you're just kind of used to that. But most people do not live that life. They're not in urban centers where there's people speaking all different languages and all these different perspectives that you have to sort of figure out how to deal with. I think a lot of people really do feel connected to their local communities mm-hmm. and yeah so or at least you would hope so and well more so i think in in particularly in a generation that's a little bit older and a little bit more rural even even younger than us um just because you know also i think in this country and other countries the issues like you don't have high-speed internet access in some of some of the most rural parts of the world so it's like it's hard to have that digital connection to Mm -hmm. everywhere else in the world and you know what i'm kind of glad for those folks because some of the crazier folks are the ones who've been online way too much (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I've done it. I've yeah. lost my marbles a few times. I'm a recovering internet addict. This is like one of the few things I still do in the, in that sphere because Adrian's just super cool and we have to hang out and talk about fun. science. <laughs> yeah. You're like one of the few people that I know from online that like I don't I don't know, there's like a short list of people that I can still stand talking to. You're like one of four <laughs> people that I still communicate with, but that's because you've passed the bar of like being a decent, well-rounded person. <laughs> um, there are a lot of, that. yeah, there are a lot of people who uh, kind of lose themselves in that way. So yeah, protect rural America from the internet. That's like the opposite <laughs> of most of the the broadband efforts. Like, you know, uh, what is it called? I get what's, that slogan what's the word? In a t-shirt. Protect yeah, rural save America rural America from the internet. From the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You already have a lot of crazy shirts. You could add that one to your list. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, although Starlink might be rolling out at some point. Um, I live in one of those rural areas, and I'm recording this right now on DSL, so woohoo. <laughs> it's going to take me two days to upload the audio file to Adrian later. <laughs> but I do it for you guys, man. We do it uh, for you, the viewers. We, we do And the listeners. Anyway. So with... With that empirical, uh, that empirical finding section where they have concern, climate policy versus economic growth, willingness yeah. to pay, I was actually really annoyed at the way they framed, like, would you support climate policy over jobs and growth or vice versa or whatever they're like, of course, most Republicans are not going to like vote high on that one. If you frame it like that, I think that's a false dichotomy. You can still have jobs and economic yeah. growth and climate mitigation yeah. and adaptation yeah no so, that is a very false dichotomy and it, and it reflects it reflects some of the more left of center thinking that's probably going on yep. here in terms of the authors um just it yeah it probably i think that alone probably did skew their results i think that's yeah. a huge source of bias in this study well, I think because if you say do- that like that's immediately gonna they're trying to keep the partisan language out of this that's dead ringer partisan language right there yeah. like well i'm not gonna say it was quite false dichotomy because i mean the way they said the question for um climate policy versus economic growth was a seven point scale so sure i'm guessing the more positive the number the more you were in favor of climate policy over economic growth but um you could have had a lot of people who were just solidly fours in that which been like Yeah, then you could say, oh, maybe that's an indicator that you don't believe that that trade-off is as stark as some other people might think. So, okay, that's fair. I'm still going to hold that wording it that way probably triggered some partisan uh, thinking. Yeah, it did. It probably did. And um, I think it was... Yeah, I think it it was in that section on empirical findings, that first paragraph where they mentioned the thing about you know, uh, yeah, amongst this indicates that populism is positively associated with climate concern, policy support, and willingness to pay amongst those considering themselves to be Democrats. Amongst Republicans, however, populism is negatively associated with climate change concern and policy support. Independents are not substantially affected by their level of populism. So if you look at figure one, mm-hmm. you would see nothing about the populism dynamic in there because they didn't ask that. Yeah, but- I don't see anything in they they looked at that in figure two. Um, well, sort and they of. only and they looked at the populism component only in figure two, but they they don't have anything that crosses the two of them. Part no, they don't. That's so true, and I was really frustrated with that because I was like, <laughs> okay, so they showed the party differences, and then they showed 
the differences of the four treatment conditions, the like self-interested elites and climate, self-interested elites, neutral, or I guess no issue, Car- caring elites, climate, caring elites, no issue. And like, but how do you know which of those were liberal and and conservative? You don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I'm not that dumb then. Because I was like, am I missing something? No, and this is what I was saying about the stuff that they use to actually make the proof of their point with the party identification figure one also shows this is where i would i would have gone crazy if i were the peer reviewer figure (laughs) one also shows the effect of citizens level populism on climate concern and policy attitudes and heavily conditioned is heavily conditioned by party identification see also regression table a4 in the appendix see supplementary material oh which is just, just like your figure doesn't show that at all. So don't yeah. say that it does. <laughs> and then you make the reader have to go download the appendix to see your actual Exactly. Argument. If that is a yeah. key point of your art of your findings of your paper, it should be in the main paper. It should not be in the appendix. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Okay, fair. Yeah. All right. That's, that that's took a why couple I was annoyed with them because I'm just like I would have flagged that as a reviewer because it's like no, I can't find that's not a conclusion I would have just reading that figure and the next figure after it. Mm. I might be able to intuit it just because of the standard deviation bars are shorter in one and larger in the other, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, that took a couple apple slices out of my pie then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice well, I don't like when, I don't like when papers make me feel dumb. I like when they explain their, their stuff so I can think it through. So. Oh, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the uh, of table two, actually, which has the populist attitude dimension that they uh, use. Hold on. Um, I think so. Wait, populist attitude dimension. Yeah. Oh, you mean like cares versus yeah? Like, because self-interest? all of those were so they were asked. Everybody was asked, "Do you how much they agree or disagree with the statement?" Um, and it goes from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Um, in there and some of them were reversed so they could code them easier for analysis when they did it later was this oh willingness to pay no 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 um table two is on 379 it was in the items for dependent oh not table not figure two table two table two okay dang figure and table confusion hold on (laughs) flippity flip the pages like a kid scrambling to find the answer on a test okay there we go table two populist attitudes yes (laughs) Yeah, yeah, what I'm, was this table supposed to show? I think that was, I was like- no, That these... was the survey questions around the populism metrics that they had for oh, measuring this is how, how their respondents were interested and po- were more populist than not. So they did measure that in the people on their own in addition to exposing them to those treatment conditions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so these are the things they asked if people agreed with. All right. So let's see. This will be fun for the listeners. So what do you think? All right, people centrism. Yeah, you can can follow along at home and tell us, uh, say from, you know, one to seven, strongly agree to strongly disagree with each of the following statements. Okay, number one, politicians should always listen closely to the problems of the people. Number two, politicians don't have to spend time among ordinary people to do a good job. That that sentence is funny to me. (laughs) Number three, the will of the people should be the highest principle in this country's politics. Uh, okay, so that's the people centrism part of populism. Yeah, so that's the three of the the three survey questions that they defined as people centric. Uh, okay, so if you score high on one to seven, 
yeah, out of so, all of those, then you would satisfy that dimension. No, in- I think it's actually it's it's a negative. So we used a seven point scale that ranged from strongly agree to strongly disagree. So I think oddly enough, one is strongly agree. Oh, well, that's dumb. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah. So one. So with the exception, with the exception, because the ones that are starred are ones that the scale was reversed when they did the analysis. So. Oh, okay. Interesting. Not confusing at all. All right. <laughs> so the second one is anti-elitism. Uh, all right. So statement four, the government is pretty much run by a few big interests looking out for themselves. Number five, government officials use their power to try to improve people's lives. Six, quite a few of the people running the government are crooked. So again, leave your uh, leave your quiz responses in the comments because I want to know what you all <laughs> how you all measure up on these. I can say mine. I just didn't really give a lot of thought to it, and I like to sit and think about these answers when I give them. So. Um, and then the last one is the Manichean outlook or the good and evil discourse. So these are odd. <laughs> Number seven, you can tell if a person is good or bad if you know their politics. Number eight, the people I disagree with politically are not evil. Eight, the people I disagree with politically are just misinformed. Hmm. This is interesting. Okay. So tabulate your responses. So if you're on the low end of all of those. So if you're on the, yeah, if you're on the low end of all of them, because they reversed it for analysis. So if you just say one for all of these things, that'd be strongly agree. But if you said seven, it'd be strongly disagree. Um, So if you're more on the low end, then you're more populist. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um. I think I'm fairly populist, actually, of of reading these, except I guess the last part, I don't actually believe that you can tell a person is good or bad if you know their politics. The people I disagree with politically are not evil. Sure, I agree with that. The people I disagree with are just misinformed. No, I don't agree with that. I think sometimes they know stuff I don't know, and that's why I like talking to them. <laughs> um, but I, then, I, like. I, you- yeah, I like those those last two remind me of a saying I've heard a few times in in conservative circles, um, which is to say conservatives tend to think liberals are not ill-intentioned, just misinformed, but mm. liberals tend to think conservatives are evil. Yeah, I've kind of gathered that from being <laughs> on both sides of the aisle through my life. I would say that's true somewhat. I think I don't I guess if I'm honest, sometimes I do think people are misinformed. I mean, I don't know why I would do the job that I do if I didn't think that. Otherwise, why do science communication? Yeah. But like, I don't think of it as a failing. I think of it as just some people's lives don't lead them down the path of learning about science. And so we can help make that up if people want to know more. (laughs) It's just I take it. I take it in a very neutral direction. (coughs) I do get frustrated sometimes when people make decisions that I see not being based on evidence, but I also get mad at that on both sides of the aisle. I think the right Mm -hmm. and the left both have their own ways of pissing me off. (laughs) I I also kind of wonder if the way this is phrased pushes more of a tribalism than a populism necessarily that you want to push toward one particular Mm. group that you're a fan of because it was like the people I disagree with politically are not evil. The people I disagree with politically are just misinformed. 
both of those things could be, well, I mean, the last two, that's a good gut check kind of question if you're doing a social science Mm. survey, because if somebody answers like one to the, um, to they're not, uh, they're not evil, Mm -hmm. um, you would expect them to answer like six or seven for the next one after that, because they're opposites kind of questions. So that's a good way to check and make sure that folks are actually reading survey (laughs) you know what i think would have been a better way of characterizing this last part is not the manichian outlook but whether they're lockean or hobbesian so if you're like a hobbesian you believe that people are basically crappy and they need a strong leader to keep them in line yeah it's like having a very low opinion of humans but then Locke, his view is more that people can self-govern and will make more or less in aggregate decisions that make sense because well, of looking out for their own self-interest. I, it's something like it's that. Libertarian it's, or authoritarian. Yeah. I think that's really what this kind of comes down to. <laughs> so I, I could see I, that. I also wonder too, if maybe what they're trying to get at with these questions is whether you believe that there are evil people and good people. And that's kind of what I meant by Hobbesian and Lockean where Locke is more like people are basically good and Hobbes is like people are basically evil in yeah. in like a very broad. I mean, I'm not an expert in either of those. So those are broad strokes. So if you're a philosopher, I'm sorry. Feel free to eviscerate me in the comments. I welcome it. <laughs> but like, I'm just saying, like, I think they're I think that there's not enough academics that read philosophy and history to really understand like the, the ideas that they're trying to study. Mm-hmm. I would I hope I'm wrong. I hope that if the authors of this actually hear our episode <laughs> that they tell me like, oh, we just couldn't write about that in the article for some reason. But I mean, the academics that I interact with don't and I didn't until like my political awakening five or six years ago. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. With you. I'd be somewhat in the neighborhood of being fairly populist with this. Um Although I, I did find it funny to see the this, the phrasing of po- politicians don't have to spend time among ordinary ordinary people. people. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you wanted to trip off all the pol- populists who were who were part yeah, of it, that's wait, a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, way to flip that switch. <laughs> it immediately flipped in my head. I was just like, like oh, well. Are you really that elitist that you think of them as ordinary people? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, to some extent, I think I've even heard people say, you know, the Washington elites don't really know what it's like to be a regular person. So mm. it may it may not be a totally weird thing, but I, I it kind of struck my it, it set a little bit of a mini alarm off in my head where I was oh, like, yeah. eh, that doesn't feel good to read. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting. See. Yeah, yeah I don't really have curious to your thoughts on that table because of the questions that they were asking. It was just like, huh? <laughs> Yeah, they were interesting. The first set was all right, but the last one I was just kind of like, I don't know, y'all, it was a swing and a miss. Two two hits and a miss. <laughs> so, I don't know if I have any other thoughts on this. If you have any more you want to... Oh, I did want to point out that they really, really beat up on Trump a lot, and it almost I makes me laugh. Like, like, there's so there's so <laughs> many digs, like, like presidential uh nominee donald trump or whenever this was written i don't know Mm -hmm. if this was from 20 wait what was the year this was published 2020 okay so it's post post uh trump presidency but yeah they beat up on trump a lot and it's almost comical like he's i i don't i don't love him you know like no uh but i i think people make him out to be this like 
horrid person and he's really just not <laughs> no yeah, well, he, he's not he's not an evil monster in the same way in, in the same way that a lot of a lot of democrats and liberals aren't aren't evil monsters either so yeah he's like however in the real world debate populist messages are usually combined with ideological content e.g right-wing populist messages against climate mitigation made by u.s president donald trump and then there's like three or four more spots where they're like populists and like trump. donald trump like over and over again like anyway i well, thought it, it was funny i i do wonder it didn't come out very strong but i do wonder if that was a framing thing to put like populism in a more negative light um just yeah more maybe generally i mean you can definitely tell that academics really hate trump it's like <laughs> it's like dripping from the pages of all this literature <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I'm technically an academic in my professional capacity, so I'm just like, I, I, I didn't hate the man, didn't think he was the most brilliant thing in the world either, so. Yeah. No, I mean, not all. Obviously, I meant, like, many, but, and these guys aren't even American. These are Swiss no, Trump and Austrian. Yeah, Trump wasn't loved across much of the world in academia. Yeah, I, I think a lot of Europeans really, really didn't like him. It's hard to say. Do the do the uh, American liberals hate Trump more than the European liberals? It's hard to say. I have no idea. If any of <laughs> yeah. you from international, please go ahead and let us know. Let us know. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, I have no more thoughts. If you have any other things you would like to say about I mean, this paper... There, there's it. a there's a few different things that came to mind with for me with this paper i mean obviously the biggest beef that i have is that for all of their conclusions that they made they didn't do a good job of demonstrating that any of them are actually accurate with the figures that they put in the paper so I'm just yeah like, really you yeah, don't me put, <laughs> don't put the key figure in the appendix that's today's lesson <laughs> or figures because i don't because i was looking at figure two again too and it was just like Figure two, populism, political ideology, and climate attitudes. Um, there's nothing about political ideology in figure two. <laughs> no, not at all. I actually wanted to see that because of the claim they made at the end. So. Yeah, and that's why I'm just like, you made a claim and you didn't support it with anything. So, yeah, it's like, might have been a well done study had they actually supported the claim well enough but they did not. <laughs> I think the one thing that I will say to put this into context is there are not that many representative large sample size surveys done on this topic. Yeah. No. It's 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 not a small literature base, but it's also not huge and a lot of the pieces are they are not uh they're not actively testing any of the hypotheses. They're more like the review style where they look they look at past data and claims and there's kind of like think pieces, almost peer reviewed think pieces, which can be kind of annoying. There are not, there are other surveys. We can always talk about them in future episodes, but it is good that someone is actually putting this, these ideas to the test. Cause I think thinking about populism is the right, is on the right track for what's going on with yeah. science communication. I think that they're trying and I, yeah. I don't want to beat up, on them too much because I would I would rather encourage that more people look into I would say why people are attracted to populism mm -hmm. that's a more interesting question to me that I don't see as much research on yeah no I, I agree in the sense that you know it's it's uh we've talked about we talked about this in the last episode too that the trust in universities in particular has plummeted in the last five to six years um yep. and in and in part because there is a common view that this is this is an elitist place this is a place that doesn't doesn't care about anybody who's not there 
um, or yeah. doesn't think like they do. Um, and, that, and that's yeah. concerning, you know, because I think um, maybe maybe for the next time I'll dig up a paper on actionable science or something like that that we can think about because it's a, it's that's an interesting topic where you are gearing your research hypotheses toward answering a question that is relevant to stakeholder that is not you um yeah. quite often when you're doing actionable science is the short version um and i think that they're thinking i do agree with you that thinking about populism is a good thing here because as much as scientists and academics don't want to admit it, they're not necessarily looking in the mirror at what they have done wrong to push people away from them at this point. Yeah. I, I don't see it. Maybe you've seen it more than I have, but I haven't seen it all that much and it's been concerning. And I know some of the conversations that I've had with folks um, in universities about this have usually and got around in a circle of, well, these people are just closed-minded that they won't listen to us. And I was like, well, who's the closed-minded one? <laughs> I've had some <laughs> I've had some frustrating conversations with fellow graduate students. I wouldn't say that any of the actual practicing scientists really get into this stuff. They're too busy. Yeah. So graduate students, though, they have like just enough knowledge to be dangerous. They can be a little full of themselves and kind of they haven't had that moment with, of humility yet. <laughs> yeah, they haven't had to apply for a grant yet. <laughs> uh, so. I have had frustrating conversations of, of that nature with graduate students. I was telling one of my classmates at Arkansas about my project, um, the science writing stuff. And he said, well, why do you need to translate studies to people? They just should read the journal articles. And if they can't, they're stupid. And I was like, really? Are you trying to be funny? Maybe he would, maybe that's his sense of humor. Maybe he was just trying to be contrary, but like he looked at me dead straight in the eye and said that. And I was like, uh, okay, well, I don't know if we have too much more we can talk about now because I definitely disagree, but okay, you do you. <laughs> so it's not super common. That was probably the most stark example, but I do get the sense that like it's, we have to help them come over to our side. And there was a New York Times article that I responded to. And of course, they didn't publish my response because it was nuanced and not left. But they said, you know, it was an article like I went to a Trump rally and tried to listen and talk and it didn't work. So I gave up. Oh, I remember I that like, one. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go and listen and not try to convince people to change their yeah. views. Just go and listen. And you could still disagree. But it's yeah, useful he to understand. He, listen. he wasn't there to listen. He was there to convince people and was right. surprised that people didn't listen. And using the, the ploy of like, I'm going to listen to you so that I can convince you to agree with me. That's like completely missing the point. So I guess I'm not that populist. I think there's an element of conspiracy thinking that has to go in with populism. And I don't really ascribe to that. I definitely am more in the camp of... Uh, ascribing um uh, incompetence rather than malice yeah um and then like the yeah, things are I... just a product of like organic change and just changing cultural attitudes that kind of happen in an evolutionary way but i'm I, certainly i don't have proof that that's how it happens it just seems more realistic to me you're gonna make an appearance piper you're gonna make an appearance at the end Ooh, is there gonna be a kitty well, nope, you're running away. Never mind. Uh, she has stage fright. 
we'll get her next time. She she'll Piper my furball, one of my furballs anyway. The other the other one may jump in at some point too. Who knows? What are you back? Exciting. Are you back? Oh, here it is. Oh, there's a cat. We have a cat on the show, everyone. Piper, what do you think of populist communication and climate (laughs) populist rhetoric and climate communication? Uh, well, she can't hear you because I've got the headphones on. <laughs> oh, well, she did. She gave us cat butt in the camera. So I think that's her opinion. <laughs> Which yeah, I agree with. Um, I, I agree with it on some level. <laughs> to your point. Um, yeah, I think really, really far into populism, you can have some conspiracy theories, but I don't necessarily disagree with the premise that people feeling like their leadership is not listening to them about mm-hmm. something or taking their opinions seriously or their ideas seriously or what they want seriously mm-hmm. um do get annoyed and that opens the door for you know you didn't listen to me before why should i listen to you now get out get out of your job i vote you out you're fired right <laughs> i guess i have kind of having been on both extremes in a way i don't know if i was ever really on the extreme right for that matter although sometimes i feel like i'm becoming that because so many things make me angry but i'm not in in reality i believe in treating everyone with respect and kindness even if they believe really crazy things that's my real opinion but having been on both sides of the aisle in my life i think that both sides think that of the other side it's like Mm. uh they believe the policymakers are not lit. So when I was on the left, we believed that the Christian right and had the ear of all of the elected officials. That was like kind of the college view that I had, that it was like these old Christian right-wing conservatives in rural areas that are retired and they have nothing better to do than call their representative every day. And so that's why most of the issues that are voted on, they prioritize that viewpoint. So that's what I believed as a college student. Now that I'm on the other side, it definitely seems like the Washington folks and the academics and, the you know, that like sort of the business owners and that, those kinds of people, it does seem like they have a lot more say in things than rural America. But the reality of it is really hard to tell because we have a state system. And so you have to go and talk to your state and local representatives and learn about them and what they think, because those are the places where you can affect change. It's almost like kind of pointless to follow global politics and national politics yeah. to an extent. So, yeah, I don't really know what I think. I just follow the data at this point. Yeah, no, I try to follow the data. Sometimes it's a confusing, muddled labyrinth. Mess, just like, just like the apples in the dumpster or the or the pie slice that's next to the dumpster. At this point, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're all just you- swimming in apple pie dumpsters. <laughs> <laughs> So where do we, yeah, now that we've, now that we've finished our discussion, I don't have anything else to add. I don't know if you do. On a scale of one to seven, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I think this study was fine. I think it's, it's good to have it out there. I, I agree that the figures were frustrating and hard to learn from, but I th- I'm, I'm like in the middle on this one. I think this study's fine. I wouldn't set it on fire. I would probably, they needed you as reviewer too. <laughs> yeah no and I'm, I'm i i'm mostly i'm i'm a little bit more to the dumpster fire end than you are but i, I like <laughs> it's not it's not flaming dumpster fire or anything like that i mean it's just like yeah maybe empty dumpster with a bunch of apples in it right yeah. don't eat them though they're not good apples anymore yeah, not good <laughs> apples. 
but yeah. um but yeah, no i i do agree it it probably was well thought out in the idea of what they were trying to do it's just that it mm-hmm. didn't really land with me because they they left some so many things out of the yeah out of the manuscript but also it didn't have some of the best methods with treatments like equating global warming and climate change <laughs> yeah i'm sure this could have been done better i having having had done a having had that's a horrible sentence <laughs> having done a survey for research it's way harder than it sounds <laughs> like it oh, it yeah. took me like 6 months to decide on the questions and then another 6 months to like edit them it was it was so much work. Like these days when I want to do a market marketing survey, it's like a piece of cake. I just put a form together and put it out on social media or on my listserv. This was like a whole other animal. So it may be that this is a product of a lot of deliberation among the authors for the best way to do things. And that can sometimes like sterilize it. And, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I was in a similar boat because I was just thinking this like, I I've had, I, the last, the survey that I, one of the surveys that I'm working on for work right now is just like, I've had to go through IRB stuff and do the training for human subjects research and all that kind of jazz. I'm just like, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's not fun. Oh, there was one small thing. I actually just remembered. Oh yeah. So, so in one of the figures, I forgot what it was, but this is also kind of like a definitions thing. Maybe, I don't know. So in the figure that had the, the figure that had the political parties in it where it said democrat republican and independent yes i think we need to stop doing that independent thing i mean i guess people register independent so that's fine but the reasons that people register independent are so wide that like all data using independent as a criteria is going to regress to the mean because there's so much variation among that group that this is one of those examples of like if you're if you want like they set up the experiment in a way that they found what they were looking for. They found the polarization. Yeah. They found the extreme one way for the Democrats, the extreme, the other way for the Republicans. And then the independents were in the middle. They're in the middle because the standard deviation of viewpoints is enormous in that group. Independents are not centrists necessarily. I, I don't know that I necessarily agree that the, that it's enormous just for that group, as much as I would say it's pretty enormous for, for um everybody really in all yeah i guess but on this issue in particular i guess it depends on what they yeah you could be right i just thought for sure independent can mean a lot of things i think more so than what right now there's a lot of people who well this is anecdotal but at least for me and like there's well here's here's a question i would have (laughs) um because the way you can register to vote in different parties, in different states rather, you can register as independent or you can register as undeclared, which is not the same as independent. Mm. So yeah, what happened? Did you put undeclared in the same boat as independent? Because those are not the same things. Yeah, and they, they didn't use voter registration data. They just had the respondents say what they were. Oh, well. So yeah, that could mean a lot of things. Like you could be a Nazi and say you're an independent or you could be like a libertarian and say you're an independent because you just don't like the major parties. Mm-hmm. That's all that means. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gotten to mean that more so now because there are folks who are pissed off with both parties and just want to be yeah. their own thing. So the independents, I think, are probably the fastest growing group of yeah. voters in the country right now. But um, it could also mean I got views that correspond with both parties. 
Yeah, that's all. Yeah, it could mean we don't know. I guess that's the the keys that we don't know what that means. So that could have captured like a pretty broad range of views that may have fit better into the other two categories if we actually knew what they meant by that. Yeah. So, but then again, that's surveys. Surveys are, it's just hard. You can't give people 37 answers, answer choices, or you have to use like super sophisticated statistics to analyze it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Deb mentioned in a, in a, in a message to me the other day that she's reading a book where the, the author pointed out that too much data is toxic. It can be. Yeah. Cause it, it gives people a false sense of security that what they're reading is like true just because there's data behind it. Exactly. So yeah, it's hard, but it's not like we should throw out rational data driven methods either. It's just learning how to wield the weapon responsibly. A lot of people don't, especially because it's all there online. Now you can just get it. (laughs) I also think that sometimes too much, having so much data in front of you gives the, the, can lead to a sense of arrogance that, oh, we can know everything that there is to know about the world and we'll never, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually know everything there is to know. We're amazing and smart, brilliant people and what have you, when really what should happen should be the opposite because when you get so much data, there can be so much noise in it that it's like you have a harder time teasing out what the truth is, not an easier one. Hi, Piper, yeah. you're back again. <laughs> Piper's back. I think she's saying it's time to end the show. Uh, I, I think that's what it is. She's, uh, I know why, I know why. They haven't had their dinner yet. <laughs> oh, well, okay. In our house, we call that KFT or kitty feeding time. And it is a very celebrated time in our home, mainly on the furry end of the family. Yeah, the, uh, uh, yeah Piper's being the messenger and Luna's probably waiting by the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> They're very organized. <laughs> One of them is the the supervisor and the other one's the the runner. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, But yeah, I think think we got our rankings and and what have you. And who knows, maybe we'll stick dumpster fire to apple pie order on a one to seven Likert scale or something. Yeah, we should. I'm going to create some graphic for that where it has like a dumpster gradually turning into a pie or something. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not that talent of an artist, but maybe I could do something. We'll see. So Maybe that'll be flashed on the screen and you guys can also decide, do you think this study is on one end or the other? Leave your vote in the comments. And thank you for tuning in to the second episode of Rogue Journal Club. Thank you, guys. You have a good one. Stay curious, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasophia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2022.